Welcome to Many Minds, a podcast about our world's spectacular varieties of mind and what we can learn from them. We feature conversations that shed light on the diverse ways of thinking, sensing, and being that are out there. I'm your host, Kenzie Cooperider. Thanks for joining us. Greetings, friends, and happy February. We've got a treat for you today, a conversation with Dr. Michael Muthukrishna, an associate professor of economic psychology at the London School of Economics. Michael's research takes on a suite of topics that all start from a single big question. What makes humans special? Why are we so different from other animals? Part of the answer has to do with our neural hardware. There's no question we've got big brains, and Michael has some cool things to say about why they may have gotten so big. But he's just as focused on our cultural software, the tools and ideas we develop, tweak, share, and accumulate over time. You might say he's more impressed by our collective brains than by our individual brains. To study all this, Michael builds formal theories and computational models, he runs experiments, and he constructs and analyzes huge databases. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, meaning there's hopefully a little something for everyone. We talk about the finding that the size and interconnectedness of a social group affects the cultural skills that group can develop and maintain. We consider what actually powers innovation. Hint, it's not lone geniuses. We discuss how diversity is a bit double-edged, and why psychology needs to become a historical science. And that, my friends, is hardly all. We also touch on cetaceans, religious history, and spinning plates. I've been hoping to have Michael on the show for months now. His work is, I think it's fair to say, a little unusual. It's deeply theoretical, advancing the basic science of what it means to be human. But it's also engaged with important practical issues, things like corruption and cultural diversity. So let's get to it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Michael Muthukrishna. Enjoy. Michael Muthukrishna, thanks for coming on Many Minds. Thanks for having me, Kenzie. So looking over your papers of the last couple of years, I couldn't help but notice you've got a lot of different topics at play. So for example, I see some work on whale and dolphin brains. I see some work on religious history. I see some work on corruption. So how is it that you tie those together? Could you just kind of connect the dots for us? Yeah, sure. So the starting point for a lot of my work is why are humans so different to other animals? I mean, in many ways, we're, we're just like other animals. You know, we care about our young. We, we reproduce the way other animals do. We need food and so on. But we're also kind of unique, right? I mean, we blast rockets into space and land them vertically. We build this crazy internet and so on. And the answer to that question leads to a kind of theory of human behavior. And I think of this kind of theory of human behavior, and I'll, I'll outline it in a second, but I think of this, this theory of human behavior as being kind of this, this moment in the social sciences that other sciences have gone through. So, you know, so once upon a time, you know, the, the physical world was chaotic. You know, it was a world of capricious gods creating the weather and apples falling to the ground because, you know, they wanted to be closer to the, uh, to the ground or, or their maker or whatever. Um, and then along comes, you know, Newton. Uh, and Maxwell and folks like that, and they write down some rules. We still can't predict the weather, but now, you know, the physical world is a little less chaotic. We understand how it works. And once upon a time, you know, the chemical world felt chaotic. Even Newton himself was trying to turn lead into gold. Uh, and, you know, we were mixing, uh, you know, some solid with a liquid and suddenly you get a gas and it was unclear what was going on. And then along comes Mendeleev and the periodic table. And again, you know, at the, at the, the frontiers and the cutting edge of, of chemistry, it's still difficult to predict these things, but now we deeply understand how it works. 
And the biological world feels pretty chaotic, right? And so it's not clear why some animals have wings and some are underwater and they, they mate in certain ways and so on. And then along comes Darwin. And now at least we have a set of rules that allow us to make a lot of progress and understand how the system works. The world is a little bit less chaotic. The same kind of revolution is happening today with you know what's called dual inheritance theory or culture gene coevolution or the extended evolutionary synthesis in that the social world feels pretty chaotic. It's not clear why you know some rulers uh, you know follow rule of law and others don't. It's not clear why some groups are doing better when it comes to a pandemic and others are not. It's not clear why groups around the world believe different things and uh, behave in different ways. But now we do have you know dual inheritance theory, culture gene coevolution, extended evolutionary synthesis, and the world is a little less chaotic. We at least now have a sense and understand the rules by which it's operating, and we have yet to see what we can do with that. So why I have kind of all of these different areas is that I've been able to kind of test it or use it in these different spheres. And so far, it, it allows me to make a lot of progress. Cool. Well, we will definitely be diving into some of your particular um, applications of this theory as we go. So I thought maybe we could actually take a step back, though, just to trace your personal kind of arc, your personal uh, you know, journey, as it were, to these questions. So what, what was your undergrad major in? So uh, in undergrad, I was, I was an engineering major, and I did mm. a dual degree uh, with, with psychology. So it was kind of the other way around at the beginning. I was always interested in kind of these big questions about human behavior, mm. uh, but I like managing risk. And so I was like, you know, I, it's not clear whether I'll get a job at the end of this. And right. <laughs> so I thought, let me, let me pair this with something. And so I, you know, I had good enough grades to get into like law, medicine, or any of these fields. And so I was like, okay, let me, let me do engineering. I've been programming since I was a little kid. Mm. Uh, this should be, this should be easy enough. So I paired it with engineering, but then, you know, I ended up going the other way. So I was applying kind of cognitive science to engineering design for a long time. Mm. Um, and then toward the the end of my my undergraduate program, I, I was kind of this crossroads. I, be, I was working on smart home technologies. That was like my honors thesis. Hmm. And I was like, well, I could pursue this. You know, I mean, wouldn't it be great? Let's go work for, you know, Alexa and all this stuff didn't exist at the time. Why don't we start a company here or, or try to work in this area? But I felt like I wanted to, I wanted to tackle problems in the world. Like I'm going to die one day. What, I'm going to make a bunch of money? Like it just, it just hmm. wasn't, it wasn't that appealing to me personally. And in my personal history, so my, my family's from Sri Lanka, which went through, mm. you know, kind of a three decade civil war. Uh, and I grew up in Botswana, you know, in the, in the nineties mm. pre and post apartheid. Uh, and, you know, I would lived in Australia and I'd lived in Papua New Guinea, uh, during a time where they happened to go through a coup. I happened to be in London during the London bombings where I see like, you know, second generation British citizens feel like they're disconnected from, from people. Mm. Um, and so this was kind of weighing in the back of my mind. And, and what was also weighing in the back of my mind was uh, concerns around climate change. So everyone seemed so focused on sustainability and climate mitigation. And I was like, this is great. I mean, if, if this succeeds, wonderful. But I just, I'm just not sure we're going to slow the economy to save the planet. And mm. so I, I just don't see enough of a focus on what the world looks like post-climate change. Let's say we don't succeed. And how we deal with those problems. And many of those problems seem like the things that were isolated in, in each of these places that I'd lived in, just en masse, you know? So like terrorism was a thing in Sri Lanka for the longest time. And then 9-11, the whole world was starting to think about these kinds of things as one mm -hmm. example. Um, and it seemed to me that a lot of this was driven by, by culture. And part of it was that the decisions made 
out there in the world were not based on a good science of culture in the way that we can engineer things mm. with, you know, with a good understanding of physics or, or chemistry or, or biology. There wasn't a science of culture. So I wanted to try to help develop this. Mm. Um, and so I can tell you the story, but I ended up, I ended up working with this guy, uh, Joseph Henrik. And when I met Joe, you know, he was also a former engineer. He was mm. already working in this kind of sphere. I was like, this is, this is exactly the right starting point. This is where we need to, this is where we need to be. And so, you know, what I wanted to help develop was how do we deal with issues like mass migration, for example, right? So one of the dirty truths about climate change is that there are winners and losers. Like maybe we're going to be worse off overall, but some places are going to be more livable that were once not so livable and other places that are quite livable are going to be less livable. And that means right. people moving, right? So a million Bangladeshis underwater puts a pressure as they, as they migrate to India, which puts a pressure on the Middle East. And now you've got something at Europe's doorstep. I mean, the Syrian migration crisis is probably an example of that. Anyway, I can keep going, but I'll stop there. Yeah, no, this is all fascinating. Uh, I did not, I did not realize you had that varied life experience. I mean, that makes a lot of sense now. Thinking about, yeah, your interest in culture, in sort of um, differences between cultures, and as you say, in bringing psychological theory to bear on practical problems. That's that's all cool stuff. So you, so then when you entered your PhD program, it sounds like you were already kind of your eyes were on the prize of helping flush out a theory of culture that might eventually be be useful right. in shedding light on some of these issues. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was to be honest, I was I was kind of naive about this as as you are when you're sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um so so I you know I as part of my work uh in engineering, uh I've been I've been exposed to this area uh, called control theory, uh which is effectively, you know, how Boston Dynamics gets those dancing robots to work, right? It's about mm. feedback loops and the math of those feedback loops. Mm-hmm. And the math there just seemed ideal for understanding how people socially influence one another, and you would get kind of uh, these emergent uh, beliefs, you know, occurring. So to me, what seemed like the puzzle was not so much like here's a framework for thinking about this, these feedback loops, but what are the psychological foundations of culture? Mm-hmm. So I actually, you know, when I when I first started, this, I kind of Google this, and I came across Mark Schaller's uh, book, mm-hmm. Psychological Foundations of Culture, and he ended up being my my co supervisor. Oh, cool. But yeah, so when I when I got there. Uh, I had in my mind how this thing might look. And so I just ended up taking courses and all kinds of things uh, that I felt would be in service of, of developing what I was what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so Joe was 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 cross appointed in psychology and economics. Uh, so I got to take econometrics and I got to hang out with the, you know, with the economists. He was friends with folks in biology. You know, I took evolutionary modeling. I took evolutionary theory. Uh, I took data science and statistics. So I was really looking for all of these pieces uh, that I could then then use. So maybe we can dive into what I think was one of the first studies. I don't know if this was actually a piece of your dissertation, or, or uh, but it certainly seems of a piece with your later work. So you had this study in 2013 where you were kind of doing an experimental test of some existing ideas about sociality and cultural complexity. Could you tell us a little bit about that early work? Yeah, sure. So this was, I mean, this was deeply connected to to my interests. So anthropologists have noticed for a very long time that there is this relationship between sociality. And by that, we mean, you know, how many people any person has access to, which is going to be a function of the population size and how interconnected it is. And there's this relationship between sociality and cultural complexity as measured by, you know, how many tools a group has or how difficult uh, or complex it is to make some of these tools and so on. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of interesting. Of course, it's hard to know the causal direction for that, right? Uh, it could be that you've got all this fancy technology so you can sustain a larger population. Right, right. 
Alongside that was this other finding that when groups got cut off or where their population suddenly shrank, they tended to lose technology. Hmm. And it wasn't just random. It seemed like they were losing some things that they really needed. So, you know, I guess a canonical example of this are the Tasmanians in, uh, in Australia. So Tasmania, little island off the bottom of Australia that's often left off the map, and I can say that as an Australian <laughs> citizen, um, used to be connected to the mainland when, uh, when, when sea levels were lower. And eventually, you know, sea levels rise and Tasmania gets cut off. And what's interesting is when you look at the archaeological record, the Tasmanians began to lose technology. So not only did they have fewer tools, let's say, than their, than their cousins across in the mainland, right? But they had fewer tools than their own ancestors. Mm-hmm. So they lost, you know, the ability to make, you know, let's say fishing hooks, uh, boats, you know, they're kind of pushing rafts through the water instead. And uh, it was a mystery. How did this happen? Right. Mm-hmm. And you can posit all kinds of things like, you know, maybe it's something to do with the Tasmanians. Maybe it's something to do with, you know, being an islander or whatever. Two hypotheses that existed out there in the world were, let's say, a cultural drift hypothesis. And the idea here is that kind of like with genetic drift, when you have a small population, you can begin to lose uh, traits just by accident. Mm-hmm. Same thing might be going on here. So just by accident, you might be, you know, like the, the, the last person who knows how to weave a basket dies and they didn't pass that on to anybody. And now that's right. gone, right? So maybe that was what was going on. And then you had this other hypothesis, uh, which, which Joe had been pushing, uh, which is, you know, let's call it the, the Henrik transmission model, sometimes called a, a treadmill model. And the idea here is that it's not that smaller groups are just randomly losing things. It's that the, the learning process for humans is lossy. Or in other words, uh, we, you know, we tend to learn from people or we try to learn from people who seem to have the kind of skills that we want. So I would love to, you know, to train with LeBron or something, but I have to instead, you know, instead train with, with my local basketball star, but I'm not training with a random person. I'm training with the Mm -hmm. best person I can find for that, for that sphere. Right. I want to copy the people who are successful, but the people who are successful are successful for a reason. And so when people try to learn from them or when they train, let's say a, a professor trains students, most people won't be as good as they are just simply because, you know, there's something about them uh, in terms of maybe their experiences, maybe their work ethic, whatever. There's, there's all these things that, that made them special in their own generation mm-hmm. and would probably make them special in the next generation. But if enough people learn, even in this lossy way, then a few people are going to be just as good as that person or better. Mm-hmm. And so what this model implied was that there is a relationship between the size or the, and, the, and the interconnectivity, so the sociality of a population and its level of cultural complexity that it can maintain. And that would basically be what is the population size or what is the sociality required for every generation to replace that awesome person? Mm. And that's the level that you can get to. And if you grow the population, you can have more people who go up. And it makes slightly different predictions. So uh, one prediction is in the, in the drift model, connectedness shouldn't matter. Population size alone should do the work because, uh, you know, you're not just losing people at random. It's about like who you get to learn from in the, in the treadmill mm-hmm. model. Another prediction is that you shouldn't just lose traits at random in the treadmill model. Uh, you should be losing, losing the most difficult to learn traits because those are the ones, you know, that, that have the, the hardest time with, uh, with transmission fidelity, right? They're the hardest to learn. So, you know, this, 
I could go on about, you know, some of my concerns, the way, the way psychology typically operates, like just some mm. of my frustrations in, in undergrad, being exposed to other sciences and then taking psych classes. But right. this is my feeling about how science should work, right? When you build models, uh, you look at the existing data and you try to discern which of these theories best fits the available evidence in this kind of abductive manner. But sometimes you get to a point where the existing data cannot distinguish what you're seeing, right? Mm-hmm. And so then you're forced to run an experiment. So I'm doing a little bit of commentary here, but you know, honestly, I think the psychology psychologists should be running far fewer experiments. We should be doing oh, more kind of thinking on theory, more kind of matching to the evidence. And then when you have no choice, you run that well-powered large experiment. Anyway, so we ran this experiment and what we what we did was we held constant, we ran two experiments where we held constant population size and only adjusted interconnectivity hmm. because that was one of the distinguishing features right. of the two different theories, right? And, you know, what we wanted to see is could we we find this kind of equilibrium and could we see this kind of differential loss? So in experiment one, uh, we had people who were naive, who had never used like any image editing software, use this really difficult to use uh, open source Photoshop replacement called the GIMP. Mm -hmm. And we got them to recreate this image that we that we handed to them. And uh, then they would transmit the knowledge that they'd learned in using the GIMP to the next generation and to the next generation and to the next generation to the next generation. Same population size, but one group had access to just one parent, let's say, like they were learning from one person mm-hmm. uh, and the other group could learn from anyone in the previous generation. Sorry, they, they were picking which person to learn from or they they were just shown all, all of the people? At they the were shown all of them and they could decide. So we actually ran some analyses to look at what features they were using to see who they were learning from. Mm. And so there you could see that they were honing in on the best person, but maybe sometimes the best person isn't the best teacher or didn't leave, you know, the best information. So they would often use the second person as well. Mm. And they were actively avoiding, you know, the others. So what do we find? We find, you know, exactly what you predict. If you're, you know, higher into connectedness, people are getting much, much better and continue to get better. And, uh, and, and when they're not connected, you don't see this. And it's very clear, even in the images they produce, like you don't have to run any stats. If you just literally look at it, you can see the point which somebody got it in the interconnected group, and then that mm-hmm. got transmitted onward and onward. Right? I see. Um, to the point where you know the final generation was better, you know, uh, was better than kind of the best person in the in the in the other group. That's kind of, I mean, that's interesting. I guess it was a good test of the theory, but it's not super surprising. Like anyone would be like, "Oh my god, I can't believe you found that." Mm-hmm. So we wanted to make the kind of harder test, which is, um, could we show this differential loss in any kind of equilibrium behavior? Because mm. Joe's model makes a, 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 this prediction, right, that there should be a connection between sociality and the level of cultural complexity that is maintained. Mm-hmm. And could we show the loss, the kind of loss that we saw in Tasmania? Because according to the theory, it's nothing to do with the Tasmanians per se. It's to do with their, you know, their social structure, what they have available. So here we train people up to be experts in tying a series of rock climbing knots. And we trained the first generation to be an expert. And then we wanted to watch the decay as they learned from each previous generation. Hmm. And that's what we saw. So we saw a, diff- a decay, right? People got worse at tying these, these rock right. climbing knots, learning from the previous uh, previous generation. But as predicted, we found a differential decay, and then we found the equilibrium behavior. So one group kind of stabilized at a, at a higher level, and the other group stabilized at a lower level. And the group that stabilized at the higher level was the group that was uh, more connected. Hmm. So, I mean, you know, I, you know it's a, I, I just think it's a, I, I like that paper, if nothing else, just because it's a good example of how you can use theory really dig deep into what exactly the theory is saying because i think a lot of people think of that finding as like it's it's population size it's actually not it's sociality specifically Mm -hmm. and when you really look carefully the theory it makes specific predictions which you can then operationalize as experiments and test it 
And as it turned out, you know, there were other people doing similar kinds of tests at the same time. Uh, and, and one of those tests was replicated recently, very clearly. So I think oh, nice. theory-based stuff also, in my view, replicates better. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, you're right that um, in looking looking over the data on that paper, it, it does feel like one of those findings that you don't really need stats to interpret. I mean, it, the, the patterns are just really, really clear and, as you say, consistent with the predictions. So, okay, so just to, to recap, so you in that paper, you're, you're really pulling out these two main constructs, sociality, which as you say, is a combination of both population size and interconnectedness. Mm -hmm. So that's key that it's kind of both of those things. And then you also have this notion of cultural complexity, which I'm sure you get pushback on that from, mm -hmm. from people, but essentially it just means like the- You can operationalize it in a number of kind of correlated ways. So, you know, number of tools, how difficult it is to create those tools, right. uh, how many steps there are, you can measure in different ways. Yeah. Okay. So- then you've kind of, in subsequent work, you've taken those constructs with you and you've also introduced some others to understand kind of the richer dynamics going on with brain size and um, innovation and that sort of thing. So I thought we could sort of step forward in your in your uh, research biography and then, and then maybe introduce a few more concepts. So for example, in um, this 2016 paper you have, you talk about the, again, these same constructs, and you also introduce further ones of um, notions of the cultural brain and the collective brain, and you you um, use these constructs to illuminate innovation, um, the phenomenon of innovation, which, as you say, has been sort of caricatured or, or misunderstood, mischaracterized in in the past. So, could you tell us a little bit about that innovation paper? Sure. Yeah. So that that paper, Innovation in the Collective Brain, uh, was building on some of my earlier work on uh, the cultural brain hypothesis. Mm. So that is, you know, part of part of this theory, and it tries to explain why it is that brains in general started getting larger, and the human brain mm. in particular really took off, and why you get these correlations between different uh, features of a species. And the, the the paper that you you know we just discussed on on the relationship between sociality and cultural complexity. So it kind of brings those two pieces together to say, well, what is the implication of that for what society would look like? And what does that mean for how it is that humans come up with stuff, how it is that we invent and innovate? And so I guess a, a good starting point would be that, so in that in that model that I previously described, you know, the, the, the transmission model, the, the treadmill model, there's a lot more nuance in that actually. And you can pull out of it additional predictions and additional features that should also affect cultural complexity hmm. and kind of by corollary, the innovation process that is leading to cultural complexity. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of three features that are that are present in that in that model that seem to be driving it. So the first one we kind of discussed, which is sociality, right? Mm -hmm. As populations get larger and more interconnected, we expect to see higher levels of cultural complexity. I will add a little note in case, you know, we have listeners uh, who are interested in how this plays out in say in a workplace. I'd say a lot of what I'm about to say also applies uh, at this kind of smaller corporate level, organizational mm -hmm. level, but there are a few more nuances to the model. So when it comes to the sociality, there's actually uh, this non-monotonic curve. So there's a like a bell-shaped curve. Mm -hmm. So if, you, if you're too connected up, then you're learning from each other far too much and there isn't enough kind of independent uh, recombination going on. Interesting. Um, there's a kind of optimal point of connectedness, and this is this has actually been shown experimentally uh, a bit later. The thing is that when when we're talking when you're talking about organizations, that matters. So if you think of, you know, how do you best brainstorm? You don't best brainstorm by everybody just sitting in in a room and like coming up with stuff. You actually best brainstorm by sending everyone away, 
having mm-hmm. them independently come up with ideas and then come back and talk about them together. Right. But the difference is that those are small groups. When you're talking about a population, we are far less connected than any work group, right? Like mm-hmm. I know my immediate neighbors, but not so much the neighbors beyond that, right? So our, you know, our sociality is quite low, uh, but the internet and things like that increase it. So sociality, you know, is, is doing a lot of work fine. The other two pieces are transmission fidelity. So that is mm. how well can I can that best person in, in the model transmit that information to another person, to the next generation? And if you can increase that, obviously you can pack more in, right? You can learn mm. things better. And so that that should be under selection. And that should be something that we're constantly trying to improve. And we are, mm. right? Um, so, you know, if we look across, say, the anthropological record, we see that, you know, in uh, in, in many small scale societies, there's actually not a lot of teaching going on. So, we, you know, we often think about humans as doing a lot of teaching, but it's more like letting the kids hang around and maybe slowing down a little bit so that uh, they can see what, what it is that you're doing. That's about the extent mm-hmm. of it. When you get, you know, pastoralist societies or, you know, agriculturalists where there's, there's a lot more stuff to learn. Now you're starting to see a little bit more of the teaching emerge, right? And if we, if we zoom all the way to the future and, you know, we think about the moment where this really took off for us, we think about the industrial revolution. Suddenly, you know, we need, we need education. So we need teaching, but we also need it to be formalized and we need it to be compulsory, right? Mm -hmm. Because we have to train a whole bunch of people in this new technology that has emerged. And so what happens then is that we think, okay, we're going to get all these kids into a classroom and we're going to deliver a bunch of knowledge to them as quickly and efficiently as possible. So let's go, you know, here's your phonemes, here are the numbers, here's how you combine them. This is, you know, and so on and so forth. Right. And that is something that we've been constantly trying to improve to this day. Right. We've been trying to pack more in, like, when do we get algorithms in there, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic and algorithms. Um, So that's the transmission fidelity. Right. If you can learn, if you can teach things better. So all of the tools like radio and television and YouTube videos and the Internet, Mm -hmm. they're all. Not only, you know, some of those are affecting sociality, but they're also improving transmission fidelity, right? I can, mm-hmm. I can sit down, I can listen to this podcast a few times, let's say. I mm-hmm. can listen to it and then I can also go read the paper or something. Mm-hmm. The third piece, oh, sorry, Kenzie, did you have a question? Oh, I was going to, well, I was just sort of thinking through this construct of transmission fidelity. So does this include things, would, would this include things like, you know, the development of, of more sophisticated and specific, like scientific terminology, for example? Yeah, I mean, uh, a little bit. So there is, so the way, so it's not just kind of the way we teach, the the steps become simpler, Mm -hmm. the way of teaching becomes better. So when something is first developed, it's difficult to get across, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and then eventually you can teach kids calculus, you know, Um, computers first emerge and it's just like an elite class getting on with it. And then everybody can use it because it just becomes easier to use. And so I, I guess science is like that too. We get better at teaching the information. We get better at condensing it. We get better at kind of delivering it. We're constantly refining along those lines. I, I will say though, so we haven't talked about the cultural brain hypothesis, but transmission fidelity is very important in there too. It's one of the, the key things. And there, you know, you can take it all the way back that for humans, because we had this large amount of information that any little little child needs to learn, some of the early some of the early shifts may have even been genetic. So you know, think of like gaze following you know, mm-hmm. shared intentionality, better theory of mind. These are all improving transmission fidelity mm-hmm. long before we get to the cultural stuff. Right. Okay. So there are these three pieces. So let's continue the march. So we had uh, sociality, transmission fidelity, and then... And then the third one, which is uh, which is cultural diversity, right? Mm. Uh, and this is where some of my focus has been uh, more recently. Now, the interesting thing about diversity is that it's kind of this double-edged sword. There's this kind of paradox of diversity going on. 
and it has a you know it has a direct analog in in uh, genetic evolution in, in the terms of evolvability. Hmm. You know, it's not just that organisms are adapted to a particular environment. There is also kind of you know let's say the derivative, like the second order on that, which is uh, their ability to adapt to changing circumstances. And so when you have if you if you imagine think of like Darwin's finches or something like that, mm-hmm. right? There is a certain for you know for the for the nut size or the the range of nut sizes. There's going to be like the perfect beak, mm-hmm. um, or the the perfect range of beaks. But if if something shifts, if something changes in those nuts, you're gonna you're gonna you you have to be able to change. Like you have to have variation in the population for evolution to select upon, right? So diversity allows you to have greater evolvability. It allows you to have mm-hmm. more traits right. to select on, right? But many of those traits are going to be less adapted than like the ideal for this particular uh, time right right right. so the more you know so you can imagine like the more kind of deviation from the ideal pathway you're allowing what you know it's related to what uh what psychologists sometimes call cultural tightness or looseness Hmm. the tighter your society you know we expect to see this in societies where the cost of failure is pretty high or the the you know the the benefits of succeeding are pretty high so there's very few in university places and if you fall you're going to be in poverty or something like that in those kinds of society think you know south and east asia Kids don't get to like be themselves or, you know, mm. you sit down and you study and you follow the right path that'll get you to university and get a good job. And that's the way through that's tightness. Mm. Looseness is, you know, think of, think of the American ideal, like you be you, everybody be their own person. Everybody right. try different things. A lot of those are going to be worse off than if you just did the right thing. Right. But <laughs> it allows for kind of larger leaps in innovation. Right. It allows for, you know, like if, think about something like Silicon Valley. People are like, wow, you know, this is this bastion of success. Silicon Valley is a graveyard of failure, right? Right. For every one of those Apples and Airbnbs and Facebooks and Googles and Microsoft, there's a pile of companies you've never heard of that just never right. made it. Yeah. There's a reason that unicorns are called unicorns, right? Because they're so rare. So this is the thing. This is the game we play. So when you have greater diversity, there's a cost to it. You get more inequality. You get few, you know more people who are away from the the most adapted point. But it also allows you to maintain higher levels of cultural complexity because you can make some of those leaps. For example, mm. uh, you can kind of you don't have to incrementally innovate. So tighter societies are associated with more incremental innovation. Looser societies are associated with more kind of revolutionary innovations, followed by many many fa- you know, and also by many many failures. Right. And that's only one side of it. So I've been kind of working on this kind of paradox of diversity more recently. This this is this is work in progress. But so in this collective brain idea, you've got these kind of features that are causing things to move around, and they also point to the mechanisms by which we innovate. And those mechanisms are largely incremental innovation. So we have mm. we have imperfect partial models of the world, and we use these to make kind of small incremental changes to make things a little bit better. And then we try mm. those things, trial and error kind of thing. When you really see these large leaps in innovation, they're often driven by one of two things. One, just blind luck, mm-hmm. serendipity. Uh, somebody leaves a window open, and then suddenly you've got you know penicillin and antibiotics, right? right? right. Like history is replete with these kind of uh, serendipitous in- innovations. But the other way that they happen, and I think the one that you can be more strategic about, uh, and is also related to how I do kind of work in different areas of research, is recombination. Mm-hmm. So you can take a diversity of ideas and put the pieces together into something new. As one example of that kind of strategy is, is what I call intellectual arbitrage. Hmm. So, you know, because again, along these kind of collective brain dynamics, we we specialize, we diversify. 
we, uh, you know, we divide up the labor, you have one field that's kind of making all these advances in one thing, and they're taking for granted a whole bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. Say, say causal identification in economics or something, you know, they're working hard on this stuff, they're doing this. And then you got other fields that are working hard on, you know, let's say psychology and psychological realism or something like that. And so if you're reading kind of both literatures, you can go, hey, wait, I can take this one thing, and I can bring it over here and solve right. this problem for this other field. And, you know, I mean, we can all point to Nobel prizes that have been won in this way. Right. 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 Yeah. And it's often, it's often the case if I'm, if I'm right, that like that might look like a huge leap from the outside, but when you're actually immersed in both of those areas, it doesn't, it, not that it's right. obvious, but it's kind of, it's there, you know, you can see it for, but it's just that there are so few people who are looking at both of those things right, at once. Right. Right. Along those lines, I'm fascinated by the idea of one day thinking about how we might automate some of this process. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Actively looking for these things because we now have knowledge structures. Maybe we'll leave mm-hmm, it for another mm-hmm. time. But so, okay. So, so recombination is driving a lot of these large innovations, which means diversity, you know, immigration is this fuel for the engine of innovation, right? And there's lots of empirical data to back this up. Mm -hmm. But diversity is by definition divisive. Mm -hmm. So it's also harming that first thing I talked about, which is sociality, right? Mm -hmm. If we like to, and, and it matters what dimensions we're talking about. So let's take an obvious example, language. If you and I didn't speak the same language, I can't transmit any of what I'm trying to say to you. Right. I mean, this is a podcast. I can't even sign to you or try to, you know, point things out. So, you know, so that's obviously one example where we need some commonality in order for us to communicate, for in order for us not to to come apart, in order for us not to be fractured. You can think about other forms of diversity on the other extreme that are just irrelevant, really, right? So, uh, food preferences. You like sushi. I like schnitzel. Who cares, right? Uh, Now, you know, maybe we're in the same city post-COVID again, Kenzie, mm-hmm. um, you know, and we're like, we got to go for lunch. And you're like, I only eat sushi. And I'm like, schnitzel all the way. And, you know, so now we have this coordination problem, but it's minor, right? We, we'll work it out. But then you've got all this stuff in between, all the stuff in between that can help the process of innovation or can harm the process of innovation. Mm-hmm. And it's, and I think, you know, this is, this is the important nuance in a lot of the social fractures that we're seeing today. You know, I think some people want to be like diversity in all forms at all times, always great. Mm-hmm. And other people are like, this is breaking our society apart. This is horrible. This is whatever. The reality is, is I don't want to say somewhere in between, but there are points, there are points uh, uh, there to be made. And I think we can, like with the theory that I described, we can build a better theory, a, a model of, uh, you know, to resolve the, the paradox of diversity uh, that right, I think right. uh, would lead us to a better place. How do we, how do we reap the benefits of diversity without paying those costs is another way to say it. Right. So do you also think about, and um, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but I mean, the sort of dynamics of diversity, right? Because if you do successfully integrate um, diversity points or, or um, techniques or whatever it is, pref- food preferences, then you've reduced the the diversity and then you have everyone sort of like, again. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, folks listening in here, if you haven't read Kenzie's piece on, you know, global weirding, uh, I think it's a fantastic term. It's an excellent piece. And yeah, no, I, th- I, I, yeah, I think, I think there is, there is something there uh, in that we're also losing stuff. So we, we, I mean, we would, don't get me wrong. We're constantly diversifying, right? But we can see, right? Like the world's languages are shrinking. Like we're not speaking as many languages as as we once were. It's hard to know what the implications of that are. I mean, you can make a claim and say, you know, that is just sad. The fact that we're losing that diversity. That we don't need to say anything more about like a utilitarian position. That's just ethically right. bad. You could say that. But even if you wanted to take a, you know a utilitarian position, I think you might be losing something. Because, you know, we haven't even gotten to this yet, but because, you know, so much of the way in which humans make decisions in the world and the, and the way that we think is is driven by our software, 
if you're, we're all running the same operating system and the same set of you know programs, uh, we just won't see the world in, in different ways. So I think I think there is something there, and this is I mean this is something that we're actively looking at. So we are uh, we have a project right now where we're looking at the effects of formal education as one specific way of of transmitting mm-hmm. often you know very weird ideas, abstractions, you know, uh, formal reasoning, that kind of thing, right. uh, and what it does to people's cognition and psychology. Yeah, and where we are expecting to see you know. Uh, we're expecting to see things getting lost. So maybe reaction time, maybe, uh, you know, uh, flexibility in, in, in thinking and so on. Um, so there's, there's cause and benefits. I mean, that's so far from, I mean, I, that is such an important thing. I just, we need a, we need a, a satisfactory way to tackle it. And I'm still thinking about it. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So maybe let's, uh, go back to the, this big picture of how your account of innovation differs from say, say the kind of folk theory of innovation. So there's this folk theory of like yeah, right. the great man, or I forget what the phrase is for it, but yeah, maybe the great thinker. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the great, the great man is yeah, typically how, I mean, I think, I think, I think most people have, I would like to think most people have kind of moved away from a naive version of that. Um, but I think there is still a sense that, you know, like history is driven by these great people in our population, you know, these, mm-hmm. these leaders who saw further, you know, perhaps standing on the shoulders of, of, of other people, but surely standing on the shoulders of other giants, not, you know, right, right. Person. and I guess, and I would say that that's, that's actually not correct. So it is correct in what it is correct in this sense. There are, are there individual differences between us? Absolutely. Of course there are, right. Uh, there's going to be you know, there's going to be differences in um, what the information that we're exposed to. There's going to be differences in, you know, uh, the nutrition we received as a child, how much pollution and pathogens there were in the environment, you know, what your mother was doing when you were, uh, you know, a baby in in the womb. Um, So, you know, the prenatal environment, um, there's going to be differences in education. There's going to be all these kinds of differences. And of course they matter. But there comes a point, you know, so if we look, if we look at some of the, let's say some of the great leaps that have taken place, right? I'll, I'll pick a couple that we use in the examples that we do use in the paper. So, you know, think of, think of calculus as being created mm-hmm. by Newton, you know, this amazing figure in history, but also by Leibniz, mm-hmm. right? Independently to the point where they're fighting with each other about, you know, who, who came first. Right. So, or, um, you know, who comes up, who, who came up with the theory of evolution, right? Darwin, but also Wallace, you know, perhaps a few other people mm-hmm. in, in both cases, right? So what was it about these figures that made them see these things? And if you look, you know, if you if you dive deep into, into each of these, these stories, you find kind of a similar pattern. So Wallace, you know, uh, and Darwin both come up with a theory of evolution. Both, you know, had read like, you know, uh, vestiges of the natural history of creation. You know, mm-hmm. both had read uh, Thomas Malthus's essay, uh, you know, on population, both had traveled to these diverse island archipelagos where they saw different species evolving in different ways in these different places. Mm-hmm. Both were breeders. So, so, I mean, you know, I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting is that we've known about artificial selection for a long time. Right. Um, the, in, in Darwin's uh, great contribution, it's not the selection that's, that's really cool. It's the natural, right? It's right, the nature right. can do that selecting anyway. So that, you know, it's in, in combination, they put all these pieces together and ta-da, right? So, I guess the, the argument is that there are these ideas flowing around our networks, around different people. We're exposed to these different things and they recombine in these networks. You know, Matt Ridley puts it, you know, ideas have sex and uh, they produce new things. It's a, you know, the analogy we use is, you know, it's the way that thoughts occur in our brain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the innovator did some work, but it's not clear how responsible they were, f- they were for it. It's like the, it's not clear that the, you know, 
the invention needed the inventor any more than our thoughts required a particular neuron. Mm-hmm. So they, yeah, there are these kind of figures uh, in history, but I think what the levers that that allow these folks to come about, whatever might be driving, and I mean, not even excluding like genetic differences between people, right? Whatever is driving uh, these differences, they come out uh, based on these kind of other other factors about the information that's flowing, how it's connected up. You know who we're following on Twitter, or who had access to the coffee shops back in the day. You know, I think of Twitter right. as the modern day coffee shops. So, so one of the places you go in that paper that I that I found fascinating is that you know you don't just talk about the you know the major sort of canonical big innovations of and whether they're, whether they're scientific or practical innovations, but you also talk about this um, phenomenon that listeners may be familiar with of the Flynn effect, which is sort of this mm-hmm. documented rise in IQ, whatever, whatever that is, you know, just whatever it is that IQ tests measure, I guess, this, this effect of rising IQ uh, from one generation to the next. So could you say a little bit about how this, how your framework kind of accounts for that? Or Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, so I mean, that's one of the reasons we're in Namibia and Angola looking at the effects of formal education. So mm. I'll, 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 I'll say up, up front, and then I'll kind of back it up. So from my perspective, the Flynn effect is a result of increasing complexity of culture. Hmm. It's, it's an increase in how we think about, uh, you know, the world. And it's not, it's not just education. It's our entire society, right? My favorite example is, you know, look at, look at TV shows, you know, look at like sitcoms or, or, or dramas from like, even say the 1950s and 1960s. Hmm. If, if you're not watching it, you know, WandaVision today, it kind of recreates these. And you can see how, like, from our perspective, how simple and ridiculous they look. Today, you know, think of like Rick and Morty or, you know, any any complex television show from, you know, Lost or Game of Thrones. You're tracking all of these characters and they're doing crazy mm. things in interacting ways, forcing you to think in these in these rich and diverse ways that would have been, you know, upper class, super high, hard to understand uh, stuff back in the day. Right. Mm-hmm. It's training all of us to be cleverer, uh, to be able to think in these in these richer ways today, you know, uh, thanks to the Internet. This this process is like accelerating in the sense that like. Who knew that you know uh, we would all become experts in uh, in exponential growth and what you know an R number means and and, epi- and basic epidemiology thanks to the coronavirus mm-hmm. right overnight the whole population can have some sense of what's going on or emollient clauses and you know and, and, and uh, obscure legal theories to do with uh, to do with presidents so the argument is that you know of the e- explanations for why IQ tests are rising and of the obs- you know all of the data that's available on IQ what makes the most sense and that can reconcile this is to think about human intelligence the way that we operate right as being driven by this kind of cultural software mm-hmm. so the intelligence is not so much in the hardware it's in the software it's the way that mm-hmm. we think you know once you have numbers you can count anything but we didn't always have numbers and not all right. human societies have numbers and that had to be invented one day and then once you had it, you could do things with it. Right, right. You know, we went out there, you know, out in Namibia and Angola, building on earlier work by uh, Alexander Luria. Do you know this work, Kenzie? The, uh, the Luria results on if B then Q reasoning? Yeah, I don't think I've ever read it in the original, but, you know, it's it's something I've heard mentioned in, in different I mean, places. Funnily enough, because I was, I was, you know, I was using it, the books on my oh, desk. Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. Um, but, um, yeah, so, I mean, so Luria uh, goes out to, uh, I always get this wrong, is it Uzbekistan or Kazakhstan? Mm-hmm. Uzbekistan. So yeah, so you know, so he go, he goes out and he he's looking at an educational uh, revolution that's taking place, and he's 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 using these simple if p then q logical tests that were kind of like the starting point, and that any kid would be able to answer, right? So he says, here's an example of this, right? So where it snows, the bears are white. In Siberia, it snows. What color are the bears? 
If I ask you that, you'll answer it in a second. If I ask my five-year-old that, they'll answer it in a second, right? Mm. Uh, and you ask, you know, any of the educated people in, in Uzbekistan, they'll answer it. But when you ask other, uh, the, the folks who hadn't been exposed to formal education, their answers were like, I don't know. I've never been to Siberia. But I mean, what do you think? Mm, probably brown? Brown maybe? <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I've seen a brown bear once. I think it was, I think, it, yeah, maybe brown. So it's not, it's not that they're incapable. I mean, so we, so we follow this up actually. So my collaborator, Helen Davis, has, has gone out to Namibia and Angola and we ran this experiment in kind of mock. Who knew what was going on with Luria, right? This was in the 1920s, long before we right, had right. experiments properly. So we redid the thing and we find the same result. It's crazy. So, you know, for one of our questions, you know, so uh, there's this other place and they make boats out of sand. I've got a boat from this other place. What's it made out of? And people are like, wood? <laughs> and <laughs> and, and it's, it's, it's mind blowing, you know, in the sense that, you know, so we, we often talk about being in a bubble. You know, we're exposed to only other conservatives, only other liberals, only other whatever, right? Academics, whatever. Uh, but we live in a much bigger bubble of people who have all been exposed to the same kind of particular Western institution from a very young age right. and exposed to a particular way of weird thinking that it's hard for us to even imagine how anyone could think not exposed to those things. So this is this is the global weirding that you're talking about, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so when we, when we run these experiments, we find the same kind of thing. So, you know, if you, if you vary it slightly and try to build on things they might, they, they could understand, they can do it, but it's just that if P then Q reasoning is not something yeah. you would ordinarily, but once you do it, once you can do that, you can apply it to all kinds of things. Right. So it's these kinds of mental tools that are driving the Flynn effect. And I think that's a far better, it's not genes. It's not nutrition, actually. You know, it's not, you know, it's, it's not really a reduction in pathogens or whatever. All of these things can contribute. So don't get me wrong. The hard work might matter, actually. Um, you know, so I better nutrition, of course. Better prenatal environment, of course. You know, lower pathogens, of course. All of these things and, and, and genetic differences between us. But even then, you know, even there, you know, the specific genes doing specific work in different places are going to be different. So if you have a, a gene that protects you from malaria in, in an environment with malaria, you might have a cognitive advantage over someone who doesn't have that gene. But that very same gene in an environment without malaria might put you at a, at a, at a disadvantage you know, mm -hmm. in, your, in your health. I'm really glad to hear that you followed up on that malaria work because it is one of these things that um, it's like one of these classic kind of mind-blowing cultural yeah. differences that we hear about. But as you mentioned, you know, you're like, oh, this was... This was in the 20s and, you know, the way they used to report experiments back then. I mean, like, if you've ever read Vygotsky, it's just like this yeah, narrative, yeah. right? Well, I did this and I observed I this, this and, yeah. you know, and it's all very uh, gauzy. So it's cool that you followed that up. And I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm generally, I, I'm really fascinated by this idea of the Flynn effect and and just sort of um, this steady accumulation of, of as you call, call the mental tools. And it, it, it's partly this, this process of us figuring out which things we do are meant like the products of mental tools and which things are just kind of innate kind of hardware, right? Because there's a lot of stuff that uh, I think it turns out we're actually using a kind of culturally acquired mental tool, as you say, with the if P then Q, but also things like, yeah, numerical reasoning, um, all kinds of all kinds of stuff turns out we had to we had to learn that from um, a, a previous generation that had kind of crystallized some abstraction and then handed it to us, right? Exactly. No, no, uh, exactly. But, you know, I, I forgot to mention, so, you know, Helen has this lovely data, which I think is some of the most compelling uh, data for the the role of education in, in IQ test performance. So, mm -hmm. you know, in, in her data, what she does is she looks at, so we have this natural experiment going on for you know readers who don't know um, in this particular place. So she has she has a site in Bolivia, 
um, and she has a, and we have this new site in Namibia and Angola. So in Bolivia, what seems to have happened is, you know, you've got schools in some villages and not others, and it seems somewhat haphazard. It's harder to prove that it's haphazard, but you can show that along observables, it does seem to be haphazard. We have a much mm -hmm. cleaner experiment in Namibia and Angola, where you've got the same group of Himba people uh, on both sides of the Kunene River. Um, mm. But for entirely arbitrary reasons, like they don't really care about the geopolitics of the situation. They're the same people. They meet and they marry. There's gene flow and all that. But they're pastoralists. And so they're semi-nomadic pastoralists, who, but they can't take their cattle across the river. So they really only live on one side or the other. Mm -hmm. And for largely arbitrary reasons, there are schools that have recently been introduced among the Namibian Himba, but not the Angolan Himba. So you got a very mm -hmm. natural experiment going on there, um, and what what we find in you know in the pilot data in Namibia and Angola and and the the, the much larger data set in uh, uh, in Bolivia, and you don't need a lot of people actually to show this because it's such a large effect. Mm. We think of IQ test performance as rising with age. That was how it was invented, right? It's about how you compare it to your your age peers, mm -hmm. and because we assume kids get smarter as they get older on you know these kinds of tests, mm -hmm. um, but it turns out. You know, there's something that age correlates very well with, and that is educational exposure, right. how, much, how much schooling you go. And so when you look at kids who are not exposed to any formal schooling, and you look at their performance on like the Ravens colored progressive matrices, this supposed culture-free IQ test, you find that it's flat, actually. Mm -hmm. There's no improvement with age. And when they have moderate access to schooling, you find a moderate slope. When they have access to schooling, so the West, you see, you know, a Western style slope. That's some pretty, that's some pretty uh, compelling evidence. And so actually yeah. in the paper, you know, we say everybody likes to point to the, you know, they like to say, well, you know, IQ tests, yes, IQ tests predict all these things, but they're, you know, they're culturally biased. And and I would actually go a little further or say it a slightly different way. And I would say, it's not, so, it's not just that IQ tests are culturally biased. It's that the idea of culture-free intelligence doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't like capacities that we are capable of that aren't kind of amazing. It's just that once you start to get down to the hardware, there's not there's not a huge amount of stuff going on there without piling on the software. Right. right. And yes, if you hold constant, so if everyone had equal access, completely the same, you know, home environment, education, access to resources and all that, then genes are going to do the work. What's left, right? Mm -hmm. The most equal society on earth would be the most high heritability and the most, you know, this is not controversial to say. Um, mm. But that's not the world we live in. There's these huge differences right. at, at multiple levels that are driving this art. We are not super well, you know, completely connected. It's not completely equal elsewhere. And so depending on how much uh, difference there is, you're going to have uh, different effects here. Right. So you've mentioned a couple times this notion of the cultural brain or, or cultural brain hypothesis. Could you unpack that a little bit for us? Sure. So underlying the collective brain. Uh, is the idea that we have a specific kind of brains, brains that are seeking out information to learn from other people, what we call cultural brains. Hmm. And, you know, behind this is what we call the cultural brain hypothesis, which was actually the topic of my dissertation. Uh, it's trying to explain uh, a few different things. The first thing is that the human brain tripled in size in the last few million years, or about three hmm. times as large as the chimps, right? And it's not just us. Brain sizes, you know, across uh, different taxa also increased in size. And you might think, great, we're all getting smarter. That's amazing. But that needs an explanation because actually brain tissue is incredibly energetically expensive, right? Hmm. It's fine to have a big brain, but you got to pay for it in calories. That big brain needs to help you perhaps evade predators, but also find food to pay its energy needs, hmm. right? Really, an animal wants to get away with the smallest brain it can 
that allows it to survive in its environment, you know, evade predators, outcompete uh, other members of its species for mating opportunities, access food, right? So, um, so this is a puzzle. And there's different explanations that are out there to explain this. So one explanation, you know, centers around ecology, for example, you know, resources or something like that. Other explanations are around climate. Uh, there's also like for things like uh, cephalopods, you know, there's like a, a technical intelligence hypothesis. Um, you know, how much affordances your limbs might give you or something like that. And then there's the social brain hypothesis, which is probably the best known of these explanations. And the social brain hypothesis started off as this correlation that was observed uh, among primates between group size and brain size. So it seems like larger groups have larger brains and, you know, you get a magic number, Dunbar's number by looking at uh, human brain size and saying, you yeah, know, we can track about 150 people. And so from this kind of empirical uh, observation came a hypothesis that maybe what why we have large brains is because of social living right mm -hmm. to be able to like track other people maybe to you know in a machiavellian uh, intelligence hypothesis like outcompete them somehow right but something to do with social living so the culture brain hypothesis is i would say we said a bit more about that actually. So, it, so when you look at other taxa, you don't find this same relationship between brain size and group size. You find kind of socially things like uh, you know pair bonding in birds, for example, uh, mm -hmm. is correlated. But you don't find this straight up relationship. So the social brain hypothesis kind of it wasn't a formal theory, so it kind of morphed. You know, when you use words, they get a bit fuzzy. So it morphed into this kind of it's something to do with social life right. in general. The cultural brain hypothesis is a, you know, is, it's a formal model. It's an analytical model and, and then a computational model that makes much more specific predictions. And it, I think of it as kind of a generalization of these other explanations, the ecological explanations and the technical or the, uh, the, the social explanations. And it works like this. Brains are not just for tracking, you know, and outcompeting other members of your group. Brains are for what that you think they are for, actually. They're for storing and managing and processing and using information. Hmm. And what constrains a brain size is that access to information, so how much it needs to do, right? And the calories that it has available to it, either just available to it or unlockable if it only had the right smarts, okay? And we assume that brains are actually costly. Like, you want as small a brain as possible unless you can pay those costs. So then, you know, from, from this, you can derive, uh, you know, this model generates a, a bunch of predictions. So one of the predictions is that we can, we expect a relationship between brain size and group size, but really between brain size and sociality, going back to mm -hmm. the earlier discussion, for species that engage in social learning. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Well, if I engage, so if I have a, uh, if I have a bigger brain, I can do this if I have more knowledge, adaptive knowledge, useful knowledge. And that adaptive knowledge alone would allow me to sustain a larger population. More of us are surviving because we got more going on. But if I'm a social learner, those those larger groups also provide more learning opportunities, either directly or just indirectly. You know, I'm around other, other members of the group. And so you get this indirect relationship among more social learning uh, taxa between brain size and sociality. That's what we would expect to see. Mm -hmm. But we also actually find a second equilibrium. And that is for species that rely more on asocial learning. Mm -hmm. And that has a, a whole other set of predictions that I'll get to in a second that we that need, that need testing. Now, there's a funny thing in science. Uh, we, you know, much like the innovation process, right, is not driven by great geniuses among us. The scientific process is not driven by people changing their minds and, you know, looking mm -hmm. at the data and, you know, reaching uh, unbiased conclusions. Now, it's driven by our desire to show that other people are wrong. Mm 
Right. <laughs> Innovation is a population level process. The scientific process is a commitment to a set of rules that doesn't make you as a scientist any less susceptible to crazy things that are outside your areas of expertise. Right. You're still going to use all those cultural you know, heuristics to get there. But it's a commitment to a set of rules that when we all do it at a population level, we reach this. And so as a result of this, there's a bias for publishing things that seem uh, extraordinary, right? That mm. seem unusual. You don't get into nature by publishing a paper that says, you know what? Babies, stupid, stupider than adults. And animals, also stupider than humans, right? right, right. And adult <laughs> humans, pretty damn smart, actually. No, right. you publish papers by saying, look at all these clever things that babies can do. Look at all these amazing things that animals can do. And you know, human adults, kind of dumb, constantly making errors and mistakes, right? right. <laughs> Until that becomes a norm. And then somebody else comes around and says, actually, let's correct the record that was wrong. You know, that's that's the scientific process. And so as a result of that, we've focused a lot on more social animals that happen to be cleverer and more interesting, right? So lot, lots on primates uh, is one example. There's a lot of asocial animals, except for cephalopods that haven't really mm-hmm. uh, had, had that level of attention. Mm-hmm. Okay. So so that, that's, that's one side. So the other predictions are that once you begin to rely on social learning and you've got this large group, you can begin to rely on social learning a bit more. And if you've got enough to learn, you start to push on other ways to deal with this growing information, okay? And humans are kind of an extreme in the situation. So we look at the conditions that can lead to what we call this autocatalytic takeoff. So where all these variables start to have feedback loops on one another and they all kind of grow together, right? Mm-hmm. That's the, so there's a narrow path in our model to the human space, to the human mm. situation. And the conditions that we find it are when transmission fidelity is high enough. So you need to have some of those early innovations and in gaze following and shared intentionality and uh, you know theory of mind and all that stuff, right? It happens when you have smart ancestors. So you know when it pays to be a social learner? When other people have figured stuff out, right? So mm-hmm. humans are kind of like the kids in class who didn't really study for the exam. They just turned up and the, you know, somebody had been studying. And so they're just looking over. It's like, you know what? I don't need to figure it out. I'm just going to write down and do exactly what you, know, what you did. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the human situation, right? Uh, so they begin to socially learn from one another. In the end, that social learning process can itself generate new innovations. But interestingly enough, it doesn't require any of us to really understand causally how these how this stuff works. So, um, so there's narrow pathway that happens, you know, when when there's when you have smart asocial learners, basically. So going back to Boyd and Richardson's early models, we would expect there to be kind of so they, in their models they have you know environmental variability as predicting reliance on social learning. When the environment is highly stable, the best solution is genes. I can say right. more about this if you wanted me to, but let's leave it for now. Um, when the environment is highly unstable, individual learning is what pays off. And when the environment is moderately stable, uh, it's where, uh, is where, where cultural learning and social learning wins. Mm-hmm. So we predict that there should be like some massive changes for individual learning to be, to, to be the, the dominant solution. And then a slowing down, which would lead to the social learners coming in and, and winning mm-hmm. out. That's what we see actually. That's it. Um, so yeah, so smart A social learners, you know, high transmission fidelity uh, as, you know, if, so there, there are these features basically, I don't want to go into all of them. And this leads to this kind of narrow path where the information just begins to accumulate. Mm. So now there's all this stuff to learn. Like when you were born, Kenzie, when you and I were both born, we had to spend a lot of time catching up on the last several thousand years of human history, right? right? Yeah. Like we had to just learn all this stuff that, that had come before us, figure out what was true and what was not and how best to operate in the world, which jobs to get and how we would not starve on the streets, you know? Right. Um, so we had to learn all, we had to, we had to learn all this stuff. And the more stuff there is to learn, you need a bigger brain to handle it. And for humans, it's to the point where we have difficulty birthing our babies. 
right? The birth canal just can't fit this thing through. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so we made this prediction. Actually, I, I looked uh, at around this time in the medical uh, literature. So doctors often assume that it was just, it's either kind of random or if it is anything, it's big babies that are difficult to birth. It's not big babies, it's big heads. So if you look actually, uh, uh, you know, there's a, I think it's Lipschitz 2015, you see this relationship between head size and emergency birth interventions. So not planned interventions, emergency, right? And it's not driven by body size, it's driven by head size. So once you get to about the 85th percentile, the probability of requiring an emergency cesarean or emergency forceps just hockey sticks up. Just mm. you know, thinking of the climate graphs, you know, it just goes way, way, way up super fast, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, so that that is still under selection from my perspective, which means cesareans actually lift the selection pressure with other costs like microbiome transfer for another time. But there are other solutions to it. So another solution is extend the juvenile period. So just spend longer learning. So first mm-hmm. we had we have a fairly long childhood, but then we also have a cultural adolescence. So the moment when you can reproduce and when you actually do has been delayed and delayed and delayed in part because you got to learn more stuff. You know, you got to once upon a time, a high school degree was enough. Then it was just go get to go to college and do anything. Then it was actually, it's better that you do STEM. Then it's actually, no, you need a master's too. Oh, and also uh, an internship. Did I mention an unpaid internship? And then, you know, and so on. It's getting longer and longer to the point where we're now pushing up against not a woman's ability to reproduce big babies or big headed babies, uh, but a a woman's ability to reproduce at an older age, right? Right. Uh, It's new selection pressure. Um, So that's one, that's another solution. But the, the best one I think that, you know, we've really worked out is divide up the knowledge. So I don't have to learn everything. I can learn some stuff and specialize and you can learn other stuff. And that is also going to be a function of sociality, the population size, right? In a, in a, um, you know, there's obviously there's specialization going on in every human society, but in a smaller society, there's more stuff that you have to do on your own. You know, you need to learn about hunting and fishing and, and farming and, you know, producing food and how to build, how to avoid predators and how to build houses. And so you got there's a lot of stuff you got to do. But imagine, just I want you to, you know, I'll show you the, like a model that we're we're working on at the moment that, that kind of it's a stylized version of it. Imagine you've got like a ten size brain, right? That's it. That's what that's what you can birth. That's the max size. Now, there's ten different things to learn, so we can each of us can reach skill unit one, right? Ten things to learn, ten unit brain, skill unit one. But now imagine like there's enough of us. The population is large enough that reliably we're not going to lose things like Tasmania did right? We, we can just reliably say 50% of stuff you guys learn, 50% we will learn. We'll split the population. And one of the first, uh, first evidence of that is probably a sex division of labor. And now each of us can learn skill unit two, because we only have to learn 50% with that 10 unit brain. Mm-hmm. Keep specializing. Maybe I only have to learn one of those things and get really good at it. Now, as a population, we reach skill unit 10. Actually, I don't have to just be a, a doctor. I can be uh, a doctor that specializes, you know, in, in the renal system, you know, uh, under conditions of uh, cancer or something like that. Very, very specialist. I, I'm working in New York or something, right? Now we can reach a much, much higher skill level by demanding up the labor. But remember the paradox of diversity. Remember diversity's double-edged sword. It also applies here. Now I, I'm smarter about some things and just stupider about a whole bunch of other things, right? right. Stupid about, stupider about far more things than I'm smart about. I know that feeling, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so dividing up the labor is another thing. And, and what we, what we find is that, you know, humans should also get much, much better at the transmission fidelity and they should get better at learning and who to learn from. Um, and so that's kind of the human pathway. So that's the, that's the collective brain and the cultural brain hypothesis. So when you put humans that are built like that into a society where they're seeking out this information, all these things work together and you get these kind of collective brain dynamics. So shortly after you articulated this idea of the, of the cultural brain, 
or maybe around the same time, I guess, you also did this work on whale and dolphin brains, on cetacean brains. So how did that how did that work link up to this idea? So there's a couple of things going on there. Uh, so the first thing is when we when we developed the cultural brain hypothesis, primate data was available to us, and so we could immediately test a lot of the different predicted relationships, and it fit fit very well actually. But, you know, maybe we cheated. We didn't. But maybe we cheated, right? You know, like you, you could have thought, you know, like he, they came up with this after looking at the data and they kind of retrofitted a model rather than building mm-hmm. it from first principles like they claim to do. We did it. You know, you could say that. So we wanted to be able to test this against a different taxa. And we wanted something a little bit more alien. And so uh, another graduate student at the University of British Columbia, Kieran, uh, Kieran Fox, one summer got super fascinated with uh, with whales and dolphins, cetaceans. Mm. He started putting this and testing the social brain hypothesis. He's like, Mike, I think there's there's something here. And he's a, he's a neuroscientist. He's at Stanford now. And he was like, and I was like, really? Wait, hang on. You've got this this data. You think it fits the social brain hypothesis? I bet it fits another hypothesis that I'm working on called the cultural brain hypothesis. Mm. Let's see what we can do here. So he and I basically started trolling the literature systematically and creating this database. We got a bunch of RAs involved. Uh, then we contacted uh, Suzanne Schultz, who was, you know, a big name in the social brain hypothesis. Uh, I think she was t- Robin Dunbar's student, um, and we got her involved. And we, you know, we built this this project to test it. You know, and the social brain hypothesis, I said, is kind of flexible enough that they were overlapping predictions, if you like. And we built, to my knowledge, the largest database of cetacean uh, life history and brain size and body size and behavioral repertoire and you know all of these things. And we tested the relationships. And we found exactly what we expected to see, you know, so the ecology matters, just like in ours, you know, it's, con- you know, the size of your brain is constrained by the calories that are available to you. But the groups with higher sociality, the ones that are, you know, uh, interacting with each other, those are the ones with the highest brain size, you know, you see this very nice and clear relationship. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so we we're able to kind of show these, these kinds of relationships. And so, you know, I, I, I have these kind of projects that I call my kind of spinning plate projects. Uh, so like many people in my, in my generation, um, you know, Richard Feynman, uh, Dick Feynman was this, this kind of big figure. And there's a story about Feynman sitting in a cafeteria and watching this guy spinning a plate. And, you know, he's looking at his plate and he's like, how is that wobble working? Like, how is that happening? Hmm. Um, and so he goes away to his office and he spends, you know, an awful more time than he should, uh, you know, writing down the math that he thinks would make this work. And it ended up being the, the exact math he needed when he was working, you know, on, I don't know, maybe electron spin or something in quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think of these kind of, you know, these, these kind of spinning plate projects as side projects that are related to my work, they're tests of the work and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but like this intellectual arbitrage thing, they teach me things that I can then begin to incorporate into the center of my work. Right. They kind of take you out of your wheelhouse. So speaking of that, I happen to notice that you recently got a grant to do some work on cephalopods. And I, I gather you're going to be extending some of these ideas we've been talking about. Could you just give us a little preview of, of that work? Sure. Yeah. So I got to say the that project on cetaceans took around seven years. And I was like, I'm never doing this. Oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, then actually, uh, so on on a, on a radio show, I think with uh, with BBC, the host asked me, they're like, so you've just done whales and dolphins, you know, what are you going to do next with the, uh, and, and I joked and I was like, oh, probably cephalopods, octopuses, there's something weird going on there, right? Yeah. Uh, because, you know, as weird as whales and dolphins are, I mean, they're living in this crazy, weird underwater world, right? Uh, and they're doing all these intelligent, amazing things. They're still mammals, mm-hmm. you know, uh, they're still vertebrates. Octopuses, truly bizarre, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, even, you know, even the, the word cephalopod is like brain arm or brain feet, right? It's basically like right. it's, it's, it's thought to action directly. 
you know they are truly alien like i think many you know in sci-fi many aliens are kind of this tentacly monster monsters because octopuses look like now in the in the cultural brain hypothesis i kind of focused in on the predictions for social animals Mm -hmm. but there's an entire other equilibrium that can also lead to intelligence among animals that specialize in asocial learning right Mm -hmm. so you can think about most animals on earth and think about where their decision making and behavior comes from right and you can think about those animals as specializing in either genes so they've got very good instincts very good genetic solutions to problems or as specializing in asocial learning, individual learning, figuring things out here and now, right? Humans are a new kind of animal. We've got a third way to figure this stuff out, right? So yes, we've got some instincts. Yes, we do some individual learning, but we've also got this cultural inheritance, this cultural package, the stuff we learn, not just the genes from mom and dad, but all the stuff we learn from society. And that governs a lot of our behavior. So we have really gone down the path of the social learner to its kind of extreme. Hmm. In my view, you know, octopuses uh, in particular have gone down this other path of huge specialization in asocial learning, kind of the maximal view on that. They, you know, they, they dropped their once upon a time exoskeletons and they're just literally, you know, completely flexible in, in more ways than, uh, than, than one, right? They're physically flexible. They're mentally flexible. They're constantly figuring things out asocially. Yeah. So we're basically doing the same thing. We're building a giant database of everything that is available on uh, cephalopods. I should say, you know, so this this project started when a a couple of things happened. So first, a a graduate student, uh, T. Span Dixon, uh, who interestingly works on religion, uh, was like, "Hey, Mike, you know, have you ever thought about doing this with cephalopods?" And he goes, "Have I?" And so he, you know, he was he and I started talking about this, and and then you know my 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 graduate student who's about to graduate, uh, Ru Uchiyama had previously worked with uh, with this cephalopod researcher Jennifer Mather mm-hmm. and so I got in touch with Jennifer and I was like hey we're thinking about this project you want to you want to you want to play um, oh, cool. and so we've been kind of working together building this we've, we've hired uh, research assistants and we've started putting this database together but Tease has done an amazing job of this like he he really started uh, building it with uh, another student uh, Alexander anyway so we're putting this together and we're trying to test as a starting point, the asocial predictions of the cultural brain hypothesis. Mm. So I'll give you some examples where they differ. So one prediction that's that's quite different is that for social learners, we expect to see a longer juvenile period, the larger their brains. For asocial learners, we actually, all else being equal, equal, we expect to see a shorter juvenile period because if you're a social learner, there's lots of stuff to learn before you start exploiting. You know, I like Alison Gopnik's way of talking about this, you know, the, the uh, explore exploit trade-off. So for, mm-hmm. for, for social learners, there's a lot of exploration time. It's not actually individual learning exploration. It's exploring and learning from other people, right? For right. And then you got this long period of exploitation uh, that, that pays off. There's a long period of exploration too. For asocial learners, we actually predict a, sh- a, a smaller period. So relative, a kind of, you, you, you explore for as long as you need to, but you got to start exploiting pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe you can do some exploitation ex- exploration at the same time, but you got to get to the explorations, uh, the exploitation stage pretty fast. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's an, that's one example of a different prediction. Now, do I think that the cultural brain hypothesis is sufficient to explain octopuses or cephalopods? Not really, but I think mm-hmm. it's an awful good starting point uh, because it's a formal theory with predictions that we can begin with. And there may be other things going on and we hope to build what we're really aiming for, like in our, the grandest ambition here is a more general theory of brain evolution and a more right. general theory of intelligence. Yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the, the most valuable things you can do, not just see where you're f- your theory fits, but where it also bumps up against some, uh, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Constant falsify, right? 
For sure. Awesome. Well, uh, yeah, it's total serendipity. Um, but we happen to have a Cephalopod uh, researcher on last episode. And so it, it's fun to to see these threads connecting across these two episodes. The paper was very useful to us, by the way. Yeah, they, yeah, we, we plugged it last time, but we can plug it again. The How Intelligent is a Cephalopod paper is a, is a cool one. So in one of your most recent papers, you wrote the following. Our psychology is shaped by millions of years of genetic evolution, thousands of years of cultural evolution, and a short lifetime of experience. And yet much of the field has focused on that lifetime. This is in a paper on the topic of psychology as a historical science, which I found super fascinating. And I know um, people have been talking a lot about online. Could you tell us a little bit about this, about this paper? Yeah, sure. So by now, you know, I think a lot of people are familiar with uh, the weird people problem, mm -hmm. which is that, you know, psychology traditionally has had a large emphasis on Western educated, industrialized, rich democratic societies, mostly Americans, mostly students, and specifically mostly undergraduate psychology students. Mm -hmm. And that happened because, you know, we assume that there is this human nature and psychology was the job of kind of, you know, plumbing the depths of human nature. And it doesn't matter which human you grab. Right, uh, mm -hmm. you you can you can discover things about human nature, but as it turns out, you know there's massive variation in the software running on human heads mm -hmm. that determines so much of their behavior and their cognition and even their very perception, and it varies around the world. And you know that was maybe less surprising to uh, to folks in cultural psychology who had been documenting some of these differences, particularly between you know, let's say East Asians writ large and Westerners writ large, right? Mm -hmm. Even though there's a lot of variation within East Asia or within any particular country, actually. And coming from a, you know, coming from a more kind of theoretical perspective, like we want to build a, a general theory of human behavior. We want to build a more general science, right? And to do that, we need to kind of go beyond butterfly collecting. You know, I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, uh, kind of citing Rutherford where he said, you know, there's physics and all else is butterfly collecting. So, you know, so I think we, we need to go beyond, like, let's say you want to generalize your finding. Where do you go? Is it okay to just, you know, go to another country, but grab university students who are educated, English speaking, you know, and uh, similar, you know, highly westernized in, in, in some ways, is that sufficient or is it not? Right. What diversity are we actually, you know, looking for? What, mm -hmm. what shapes the question? Right. So you need, you, it's not just a matter of documenting differences around the world. You need to know exactly how the, where those differences come from. So I've been trying to tackle that problem from two different angles. The first is to develop a way to measure cultural distance. So this is in a paper mm -hmm. called Beyond Weird Psychology, right? Where mm -hmm. we borrow a technique from population genetics, apply it to culture, and it turns out that predicts a bunch of psychological differences. And it can guide researchers in saying, actually, look, I'm going to look at a population that differs you know, I'm, I'm a political psychologist. I'm interested in a population that's quite different along basic assumptions to do with political psychology. And, you know, I can, I can do that. Or I'm just looking for a distant population. And the second way is to realize that the differences we see in societies around the world are not arbitrary. They're a product of a few different things. So they are a product of societies adapting to the ecologies and environments that they find themselves in. Mm -hmm. So there was a recent paper in uh, in science showing uh, that, you know, both animals and humans look similar or have similar features uh, in, say, their social structure uh, in different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, the interesting thing there is that the animals, like most animals, when they encounter a new environment, are forced to genetically adapt. Mm -hmm. 
humans, when they encounter a new environment, do a little bit of genetic adaptation. So I think a kind of skin color is matching amount of UV radiation to maximize mm -hmm. vitamin D and minimize cancer. But they did it culturally. And so, you know, when we look around the world, the adaptations that we see are in different societies are going to be a product of the ecology, but they're also a product of the history, right? of the kind of path dependence that led you down there. Because much like evolution, it's hard to make massive leaps in another direction, right? right. So earlier on, I talked about the education system, right? We know that, you know, let's say Shanghai style or Singapore style math education is, is, is a lot better by the looks of it, you know? Mm. We, during homeschooling, we got to, you know, try some of these other methods and they are quite good, actually. It's great. Now, imagine trying to like wholesale change the education system to a very different thing. Like there's so many interlocking pieces, retraining teachers, thinking about the assessment forms, gaps, but you know, it's, it's, it's a big shift. It's the same thing. So imagine trying to rewrite the constitution, right? Versus like being Ben Franklin and his, you know, uh, his uh, bunch of buddies, you know, coming up with it at, at the kind of beginning. It's it's hard. It's going to be a hard thing. So much depends on what has been constructed, right? Or moving to socialized medicine or something like that, right? Right. Um, so we need to understand history. So as psychologists, if we want to develop a theory of human behavior, we want to develop a fuller understanding of human psychology. We need to be a, first off. We need to theorize about where that psychology comes from, right? And we need to. Then that theory needs to explain you know differences between different sections of society across the lifespan and, and you know across geography. But if we want to understand why psychology differs across geography, we need to understand the historical psychology. So there's a direct analog here to economic history, where you know economic historians interested in differences in the present day, uh, you know why there may be lower trust levels in Africa caused by the slave trade, uh, or you know why particular societies have you know better functioning democratic institutions than others. There's a space for also understanding the psychology behind some of those economic questions, but also just the psychology that we're interested, even if we're not interested in economic questions in general, by plumbing the past. Right. So that's the first side of uh, historical psychology. The second is that it's also in, uh, useful to look at what psychology looked like in the past. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing that worries me is that, you know, today it's hard to imagine other species of humans or, you know, or the gap between us and other great apes. And I think if the great apes disappeared, it would, you know, people would be even less likely to Right. Except evolution. And I worry that, you know, with the global weirding that you're talking about, mm. the Luria findings will just be unbelievable. Right, right. Yeah. Because today, the only places in the West that we find, you know, uh, lack of access to education are areas of deprivation. Yeah. Where we're studying it, you know, we're really, everyone's equal. There's no deprivation that's, that's driving the differences in education. So that's not, you know. And so you cannot disentangle the fact that folks who are, you know, uh, who, who are going through some insult in, in terms of deprivation are also those who are underperforming in IQ tests or underperforming in educational attainment. Mm -hmm. yeah. You can do it here. And no one's going to believe those lurry results. Like, I want to document it. I want to do it well so that once upon a time, at least they'll be like, maybe he got it right. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so that's why I think, you know, we need to incorporate, we just have to incorporate history in understanding psychology today. Yeah, that was definitely one of the things I found most fascinating about this paper is how you, you basically make the point that a lot of present day cross-cultural variation really only becomes intelligible, explicable once you look deeper a couple, you know, a generation or two back and understand the, the roots of that. When you're just kind of looking out at the world today, it just can look like sort of a confetti of different practices and, and, and uh, traditions and so on. And you might come to the naive idea that it's just sort of, oh, an arbitrary, you know, humans just started down a path, like they just sort of chose different paths and that's how it is. But once you dig into it, it all yeah. starts to kind of feel more deeply rooted in. Yeah. 
Exactly. And, and if I, you know, if I, if I could just say, you know, so even when you look to the past, right, uh, we have ways of digging into the psychology of the past. So, you know, if you've ever been to a restaurant and you see something like, you know, uh, you can't take the glasses to the toilet, you're like, why is that sign there? Something went down, you know, <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, you know, like it's, it's the same thing. So when you look at like the invocations in the written histories, uh, you know, of different societies or just the histories of societies, you can say, so when Buddha says uh, happiness is like a candle lighting someone else's doesn't hurt your own, you know, that there's like a sense of zero sumness about happiness in that society at the time. Right. Yeah. So yeah, there's, there's ways to access it. And I think in that paper, we talk about causal identification tools for looking at present day, you know, the, uh, the origins of present day psychology, as well as these kind of literature tools or, um, text mm -hmm. mining tools, let's say text analysis. Is what I'm looking for. So we look at like text analysis tools, uh, for mining and understanding the psychology of the past. Yeah. I mean, it's really a, a super rich area and I, it does have the feeling like it's going to become a much bigger part of the field going forward. I mean, it has to, as soon as we have this insight that we need to understand previous generations to understand present day psychological variation, you start to realize, wow, we really need to develop this this uh, branch of psychology. So, yeah, congrats on that. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Groundbreaking paper. I did want to, before we begin to bring things to a close, though, I did just want to draw attention to, so I, I guess connected with this work on historical psychology, you were part of this database of religious history project, which mm -hmm. looks super fascinating. Could you just give us a really quick sketch of that database? Sure. So, I mean, that actually also has an interesting story. So, it's a database that I, um, so being an engineer from the past and working in software, I, I, I developed this database with, uh, with Ted Slingerland. And it was first developed as a particular test of something called the big God hypothesis. Hmm. So what is the role that belief in, in supernatural punishment and supernatural agents had play, has played in the rise and the stability of large-scale civilization? Mm -hmm. We could have another episode on cooperation to understand right. why that is. I, that was never – so from my perspective, you know, religion is just another aspect of culture. And so what I, you know, what I saw myself as kind of developing is a database of cultural history, starting, you know, all of history, a little bit crazy. Why don't we start with all of religion, <laughs> you know, all of right. religious history. And, and so, but the goal, the goal there is that if you want to, let's say, engage in historical psychology, you want to understand the, you know, the origins of present day psychology, or you want to mine how things were, or you want to test. So some of the predictions of cultural evolutionary models are about things that happened in the past. That's the way you test it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you if you want to if you wanna, you need a database, you need all of this data, and it's that information that you require is scattered across the literature, kind of like with the whales and dolphins and with the cephalopods. It's scattered across the historical literature, and it's in the heads of historians. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's been really great. So I've been working. You know, I have learned so much. I I, I got. It. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a confession, Kenzie. When I first engaged in this project, I was that typical social scientist who were like. I got to get this information out of the historians' heads and analyze it. Right, like they're a means to my end, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, and so, but actually working with closely with historians in, in what I consider to be like a true, you know, science humanities collaboration and a, and, a, and a quite a successful one, I've learned a tremendous amount about how difficult it is to actually understand history. You know, how a naive approach to it can get can go so so wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, 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 the, it's the same as, you know, if you want to understand another culture, it can be useful to maybe, you know, collaborate with people from that society. Right. Right. Uh, you know, work closely with individuals, become an expert in, in, in that kind of thing. And so it's become the database of religious history has actually become kind of this, um, sorry, I'm looking for the word, uh, 
not synergy, like a symbiotic. So it's becoming kind of a symbiotic relationship where there's actually kind of two projects at once. On the one hand, you've got the social scientists like myself, uh, our chief data scientist, you know, Rachel Spicer, and Willis, who kind of, uh, Monroe, who's our chief editor, kind of sits on both sides, I guess, who are interested in the data for testing these grand historical, you know, theories that come out of cultural evolution. And then you've got the historians who just have a database that allows them to, to look at what the field believes, the different points, right? And where the arguments are and what, what people think. Because as I said, the information is scattered across the literature and also it's, it's in the heads of historians. It's not, sometimes it's not written down. And so by putting it all this place, it's one project that's kind of two projects at once. Uh, but it's been, it's been a very productive mm. collaboration as a result of that. And we're analyzing various bits of it. All right. So actual last question, just to, just to bring things full circle from sort of where we started. Uh, you were an undergrad, finishing up your undergrad, you're interested in actually developing a better understanding of human culture, human cultural dynamics to help us solve big problems. So I'm just in, just, you know, just really quickly, what are, what big problems are kind of on your radar that you might be able to shed light on through the kind of frameworks you're developing and tools you're developing? Sure. So they're all kind of related to one another, as you can imagine. Mm. Uh, the the umbrella is, I would say, cooperation. So the other uh, paper that we that I have uh, in annual review of psychology with uh, with Joe Henrik is on the origins and psychology of human cooperation. Right. Um, there's a few different things in here. One is corruption. So uh, in talking about cooperation, there are different mechanisms that have allowed humans to scale up in, in mm. cooperation. And sometimes these have been proposed as what's really driving the kind of cooperation we see today, large scale anonymous cooperation where, you know, one, once upon a time, you and I didn't know each other. And yet we were in the same room at the same time and we didn't try to kill each other like a pair of chimps. Right. 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 Um, why? You know, why? Why is that? And so one line of work has been on understanding the threats to large-scale cooperation. And the general idea there is that large-scale cooperation is threatened by two forces. The first force is being undermined by lower scales of cooperation. So, you know, when a um, when a president gives his daughter a contract, right, we go, <gasps> nepotism. But that's also, you know, inclusive fitness or kin selection undermining our institutions, which sustain cooperation. Right? When uh, somebody gives a job to a friend or a friend of a friend instead of the best candidate, it's like <gasps> cronyism. But that's also direct or indirect reciprocity undermining our meritocracy. So, so it applies to help us understand and, and have some tools for thinking about corruption and, and where how we might undermine or suppress mm. those lower scales in order for the higher scales to flourish. Right. Uh, this work on like the Catholic Church kind of destroying kin relationships uh, is is one example of that. Mm. In Australia, you know, it's not kin relationships; it's mateship. You know, it's uh, it's these mm. reciprocal direct re re uh, reciprocity type things. So the other threat to large scale cooperation is threats from outside. So other conflict with other large units of cooperation, right? Mm -hmm. And they can, you know, there's they have many methods for getting in, but one method, of course, is to is to sow division, if you like, or exploit and then further, you know, uh, create division. So the other line of work is to look at how diversity, you know, the paradox of diversity or the double-edged sword of diversity can be wielded in a way that allows us to unlock all of those benefits without paying those costs, right? Mm -hmm. And so as one example, you know, we're, we're looking at, it's not diversity per se, it's kind of segregated diversity and large cultural distances within a polity. So when you have like groups that just don't get along, right? Mm -hmm. Then it's harder to have a functional democracy. Like if you are very culturally distant, it's harder to have a functional, like if you're if you're like Denmark, you we all agree we need socialized medicine, you just pick the best person to implement it. 
you know, but if you are, you know, let's say you, you can't even agree whether you should have socialized medicine. It's such a gap. Right. Yeah. You can't put the best person in power. You have to put your person in power because your interests are so different to everyone else's. Right. In other countries, it's driven by tribalism and kin relations and other, you know, in other places it can be different, just, just cultural distance. So unraveling and resolving the paradox of diversity is another line uh, of research. Awesome. So regrettably, I think it's time we um, bring things to a close here. So I'm wondering for any listeners who want to dive a little deeper into this area, into some of these topics we've been talking about, do you have any readings or other resources you might recommend to them? Yeah. So two books that I recommend are, are written, the two most recent books by Joe Henrik. So uh, The Secret of Our Success is, a, is the older book, which is an excellent, excellent, probably the best introduction to cultural evolution. And the more recent book, uh, The Weirdest People in the World, is one example of the way that uh, suppressing lower scales of cooperation, in this case, the Catholic Church, hmm. uh, banning cousin marriage can allow, you know, democracy and higher scales of cooperation to flourish. The other book that I uh, would recommend if you're interested in, you know, digging into some of those stories of how innovation actually works is Matt Ridley's new book, How Innovation Works, hmm. um, and Matthew Sai's book, Rebel Ideas. Both are very good. Awesome. Yeah, those sound. Those all sound great. And you know, it, it's a little while away, but I should also mention that that I'm writing a book on on these the topics that we've talked about today. Very cool. Well, we'll definitely keep an eye out for for that. Um, and maybe we can have you back on the show when when it comes out and, and dig into that. This has been fun, Kenzie. I would be delighted. <laughs> so, for anyone who wants to follow your work, keep tabs on this book you mentioned. What what are the best ways they can do that? So, the best ways are probably. Uh, check out my website, michael.muthakrishna.com. Uh, and I guess follow me on Twitter uh, at mmuthakrishna. Awesome. Well, Michael, this has been super fun. We could go on all day. Um, it's been it's been really interesting diving into some of your some of your recent work and also hearing uh, hearing some of the the backstory behind some of this stuff. So thanks so much for coming on and joining us. Thanks for having me, Kenzie. It's been a lot of fun. The Many Minds Podcast is a project of the Diverse Intelligence's Summer Institute, which is made possible by a generous grant from the Templeton World Charity Foundation to UCLA. I'm Kenzie Cooperwriter. Thanks so much for listening.